This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? 9.37 a.m. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. And this is WTF, or What's the Focus? Our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed or any other bits of news that has really caught our eye and dominated our thoughts. In any case, <laughs> our our mission is to help uh, usher you into the weekend full of uh, knowledge and interesting facts and figures to share with whoever that you meet. And uh, I'm pretty sure there'll be a lot of gatherings uh, today and over the weekend, given that it is the Mid-Autumn Festival. Happy Mid-Autumn Festival to all those who observe the occasion. Question is, are you a yoke or non-yoke girl? I have to say, I think my tastes uh, trend towards the non-traditional. So we've had a lot of very interesting flavors come through our doors this week. I mean, we've had our fill of mooncakes for the past two weeks, right? A lot of generous uh, donations of mooncakes. Yes, yes. And I have to say that uh, my uh, favorites are tend to be the fruity ones. I had a really ah, great mango yes. pineapple mooncake, which, uh, yeah, which I thought was awesome. Well, my mom likes all these traditional uh, ham and fruits, meat and fruits kind of mooncakes. Uh, and she really is into those kind of things, right? Whereas as you, I'm also in the same camp as you. I like the more non-traditional stuff, right? A bit more on the sweeter side, but she is really more into the savory pieces. There is room for both on the table, for I sure, say. For sure, for <laughs> sure. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the big stories that have dominated discussions this week. And I think I'm going to begin with a look at what's been happening over in Hollywood, because I think it was this week uh, that we got news that the Writers Guild of America, the strike by writers in the Hollywood industry, they have actually managed to come to a compromise deal with the AM. PTP, which is the uh, group uh, representing the producers and all the big production houses, uh, that has come to, uh, so the strikes have come to an end after 146 days of no work. Pretty long, I think. That's one of the biggest things. And what struck me with those strikes was that how, you know, they are a sign of times. I mean, we talk about the classic things like pay, but also the worry about the impact of artificial intelligence on the future workforce. Uh, I think what is interesting, especially with the entertainment industry is there's global repercussions and you know for me who loves those late night shows that come from the United States you know they were not on air for close to five weeks if I correct me if I'm wrong, or five months sorry and I think what was interesting was that the five late night shows hosts actually organised a podcast called Strike Force 5 where the proceeds went to these out of work staff on their respective shows so I think the question also is how do these entertainers remain relevant uh, in these day and age and what I think is very interesting was that they were still able to maintain that relevance through other media forms like podcasting. I think it was definitely interesting to see how different maybe show figures uh, reacted to the news. So we had the late night show hosts doing that project you mentioned, but then we also had the controversy with, say, Drew Barrymore or Bill Maher in the sense that they actually broke ranks, right? They they turned into scabs (laughs) with the show. (laughs) Uh, Then they backtracked after the incredible backlash against it, which 
makes me think about how these strikes are viewed by the public. You know, what's public perception of the strikes? And uh, I think in general, there seems to be a lot of um, support for them, essentially. And I think those who cross the picket lines are seen in a very negative light. And to be fair, I think the biggest person, I think, to support these strikes was the president of the United States himself, Joe Biden. He participated in the strikes, or he at least lent his support in a very vocal manner. And this was this was a different strike, though. This was yes. a strike involving the auto workers. So the UAW, they've been striking against three of the biggest uh, car manufacturers in the U.S., uh, Ford, GM, and Stellantis. Uh, they are actually looking to expand their strike. So it started, they had a very targeted approach in their strike work, uh, just targeting a few company, a few uh, plants, I mean. Uh, but this has expanded uh in the intervening weeks. And um, I think everyone's watching to see what kind of impact this will have on the broader auto sector and who the winners and losers are. It has a broader repercussion about US manufacturing. I think that's also one of the biggest implications about this strike that, you know, Joe Biden wanted to basically create, usher this renaissance of, you know, onshoring, bringing back manufacturing into the United States. So whether or not these strikes actually cripple that aspiration is, uh, is in my mind as well. What's also very interesting is, as you know, these auto workers are actually in the Great Lakes in Michigan, which is actually a battleground state for the Republicans and Democrats. Uh, President Donald Trump was able to, you know, wrest the presidency then from Hillary Clinton because he was able to resonate with this um, middle class workers, right? These workers here who were really uh, the backbone of what they call the manufacturing of America. So I think President Biden, he was being pretty savvy here by participating in the strikes to kind of win the hearts of these blue-collar workers. Well, well, it remains to be seen uh, whether that will actually translate into votes next year. And I think that's something uh, we'll be watching very closely. Indeed, if we take a look at other developments, maybe closer to home, uh, I think one of the things that is interesting is this discussion around political dynasties, right? Mm. And I think we do see certain names linger uh, in the political landscape of certain countries. I mean, in Thailand, it's the Shinawat family. Uh, They've had several people in leadership positions, whether in government or in politics, uh, kind of just staking their claim there. Uh, And we are also seeing um, something happening in Indonesia. I mean, let's just be honest. It's happening everywhere. We have it in Malaysia, Najib. Uh, Razak with Dun Razak. We have it with Myanmar with Aung San Suu Kyi and General Aung San. We have it in Philippines with uh, current Marcos, the two Marcoses, right? So political dynasties are really part and parcel of uh, Southeast Asian politics here. And I think this in particular with the respect of Indonesia is with Jokowi's son, I think, being made chairman of another party uh, in Indonesia. And this is huge repercussions, right? Because it also has implications about the relationship Jokowi has with the PDIP, which is currently supporting him. So... It's interesting in the sense that um, Jokowi's son, uh, Kaisang Pangarep, uh, he's 28. He's joining the Indonesia Solidarity Party, PSI. Yeah. And when you think about PSI, when you when I read about it, it sounds so much like another youth party. Youth movement, exactly, yes. <laughs> in our country. Yes. Uh, but they are a small party established in 2014 by a former television journalist. Their members are young and social media savvy. And uh, Jokowi's son has now become the head of this party. In contrast, his father and his other relatives, I think he has an uncle, um, he has two uncles who are also uh, mayors in uh, Indonesia. They're all part of the PDIP. So he's actually joined a party that's not part of 
you know, not the same, not in not the same, in the same line as his, as his father and uncles. That's right. And what I think is interesting is this talk about PSI supporting Prabowo, who is actually in the opposition camp. I think that's that subtle shift that's taking place. So for us, we were always asking, okay, with this son, with Jokowi's son joining this party, is Jokowi by design pumping his bets against Prabowo, right, as opposed to the current PDIP candidate? That I think is very interesting. And if you look at Indonesian politics, Really, they're all strange bedfellows. They all work together. They all can govern together. I mean, Prabowo is the defense minister at the moment of Jokowi's administration. But when it comes to elections, they all can be competitors and actually fight with each other politically. What does that mean for um, loyalty to a political party, I guess? You know, I mean, does that mean the party doesn't, the party is second to maybe ideas instead? And it doesn't matter which which banner those ideas come under um, as long as they're out there. And I think some, some people see, uh, that uh, Kesang joining PSI, it's a vehicle for him to keep Jokowi's ideas Relevance. alive, yeah, yeah. If without having to tie down to a, a certain political party. So yeah. that's actually quite interesting. And I guess another question I have is, you know, what do you think of political dynasties? Are they a good thing? Are they a bad thing? Do we want to see a political landscape dominated by one name or one family? Is that... Uh, for me, no, because we should add, implement meritocracy, right, in even our political system. But the problem here is that that name for familiarity is going to translate to votes because people tend to not deal too much into the details of policy, but talk more about the personality. And so when we start having conversations about the personality of the person, about who we trust, as opposed to the abilities of the person, that's why all these political dynasties flourish. Right. So the issue of, I guess, as long if the person actually has the merit to carry that leadership role forward, that isn't an issue. But the problem is, do they, right? Yeah. And and because our politics are so dominated with personality, charisma, character, you know, everyone's looking at the person rather than what it is they're espousing, uh, that makes it a little bit dangerous. It I makes suppose. it dangerous. I mean, a classic example is Philippines. You have alternating dynasties. If you think about it, you have Duterte. Sarah Duterte actually was a strong candidate for president. She became vice president, gave way for Marcus Bongbong instead. So for me, that's really interesting, right? You have these alternating dynasties, which is also very dangerous because you then don't really create a performance-driven political system there. And let's just not forget, in Singapore, it's also a political dynasty, Indeed, indeed. So, you know, let us know what you think. What do you make of political dynasties in the region? Good, bad, you know, how do we change things up? Mm. How do we let more newcomers come in with different ideas? Um, you know, you can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. You can also send us a X message. Um, but it is 9.47 a.m. We are going to take a quick break heading into some messages. We'll come back with a look at more stories that have caught our eye this week. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. 49 a.m. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana with Phil. This is WTF or What's the Focus, our recap show where we look at some of the top stories this week. And here's something that has been uh, trending from the previous week because I think it was uh, two Fridays ago that we uh, heard from the UK and the fact that uh, they are planning to Uh, delay some of the uh, climate change goals that they have. And this has caused uh, something of an uproar there, uh, given that uh, the British government has always been very, uh, how to say, very... Progressive. Yeah, and in the forefront of climate change action, right? Correct. Um, And this is part of a broader trend, it appears, of uh, you turning on green policies. As you said, right, in the UK, uh, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, said that he plans to actually delay the, the end of 
the sale of new vehicles with international inter, internal combustion engines by 2030 and also weaken the phasing out of new gas boilers by 2035. This is really, I think, the question all environmentalists are very worried about. You know, it's very easy to put a 2050 target. And when you start putting shorter term targets like 2030, and as you get closer to the time and you realize you cannot execute it well, then you change your short term targets. That is why always so much pressure, right? To say, well, tell me, you can tell me all your long term visions, but what is it like, right, in 2030, 2035? Then the rubber really hits the road and then reality sets in. And that's where you see all these U turns and pronouncements take place. So, in that sense, do you think these U turns were avoidable then? Is it due to a lack of preparation or maybe things came up that uh, people didn't realize would be an issue, right? Because nobody foresaw, say, the outbreak of the Ukraine war uh, when these yeah. goals were set. Um, how many years ago? Yeah, so I think you know, of course, everyone will argue the context to it, right, and how you plan ahead. Perhaps you're right, there are things out of your control that, you know, forces you to rethink, right? There's always this thing, right, of course I change my mind if the facts change. <laughs> so naturally, you should allow yourself that flexibility to do so. But this, of course, will be naturally disappointing when we know that we really have a, you know, climate crisis right in our hands. So really, at what point do you move your goals? I think what was especially, how to say, disheartening from the UK perspective is that climate change action has been a bipartisan issue for so long. And mm. that's what made them different from the rest. And they started really early. They passed their climate change leg legislation back in 2008. So they really did have this head start. But suddenly, with this conservative government led by Rishi Sunak, you suddenly see a change in the emphasis that they're placing on on this um, and they also seem to be bypassing some of the institutions that were set up to oversee this uh, climate change transition. Um, so, I mean, Britain's climate advisor said back in June that it wasn't doing enough to set this mid-century net zero target. Um, so you had those kinds of indications of friction mm. within that established institutional framework. But I think it's also the paradox of the, the local constituents here because I think Rishi Sunak apparently got inspired by the recent election at Uxbridge, one of the state constituencies where where there was a backlash over a charge for drivers of polluting cars in outer London, which helped the Conservatives cling the seat as a, you know, rapprochement against the Labour London mayor. So he, you know, you know, he thinks that voters like this practical approach towards climate change, right? That's why he's probably applied that in, in this logic here. But if you're right, in terms of polls in the UK, generally you see a consensus that actually more has to be done across Indeed. all political aisles. And it's interesting to see whether that uh, momentum will be sustained. I think there's actually been uh, more more support for net zero by 2050. So, uh, you know, yeah. whether that's going to change how policy uh, makers set their direction, uh, we'll be watching that space very closely. But Coming back to home, we may be seeing some uh, policy or policymaker changes uh, in our own cabinet, right? Because there have been rumours, there's been speculation uh, that the Prime Minister is actually considering to reshuffle cabinet. Rumours that he has not exactly dispelled. Yeah, I mean, when there's smoke, there surely is fire, isn't it, Shaz, in my view? Although, of course, Communications Minister has said that there is no plan for any reshuffle. Interestingly, though, now we're in September. If you think about this new cabinet come December, it is an ideal time to perhaps do this one-year reflection to see where has this cabinet performed, who has done well, who has not done well, who has met the KPIs that were set in January, and then decide, okay, on that basis, we should reshuffle.
We are going to hit that one year uh, of the unity government on the 24th of November, right? Mm. So it's a little over a month away, a month, two months? Two months. Two months, okay. Well, end September, so October, November practically, right? With the new government in place in December. But do you, what do you think? When when is a cabinet reshuffle warranted, or or what? Um, when do you think a leader should be thinking about changing up his cabinet? I always think that it's a function of a result, election result, because you know you get a people's verdict. The people's verdict perhaps tells you a sense of where you are, and perhaps the last six state elections, although they did cling on to three seats, but you know with a very much big support for Perikata National, maybe this is a sign of times, right? That he does need to do a bit of a shake up because there's been some criticism about the lack of action by his cabinet. So perhaps I think elections usually are a great precursor to fundamentally changing your lineup. But in a way, at the same time, change requires time. And if you keep changing the leadership yes. of your cabinet portfolios, when exactly will there be the consistency um, of, of leadership to, to push through the reforms needed, right? Which is a very interesting story you connect, because if you reflect in what happened in the UK, their climate change secretary changed three, four times. And that's why you see this U-turn of policies, right? And for certain things which require structural reform, you do need basically someone who can hold the ship for a long time. Time because reform is painful. You do need someone who can, you know, hold the ship. And I think maybe, maybe many expect that this administration will, our, our own current unity administration will be around for the next three years. It's now time to do that painful reform. And perhaps this is why he wants to change his cabinet now and really start putting in place the those necessary reforms, which will last the next three years to oversee in terms of implementation. Well, it obviously is going to be a question that everybody will be looking at whether or not he reshuffles the has been put out there. Would you ever consider yourself as a cabinet minister? Would you put your name in, Shas? I do not think so. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely uh, dis- put, put an end to any of those. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you should not discount yourself in the mix because we have seen non-politicians actually become cabinet ministers. We have one example, Tanku Zafu. Will he add more, you know, mer- you know, technocrats into the Uh, This is the open question that we will be discussing all two months long as we head into the (laughs) one-year anniversary of the Unity Government. But that is all the time that we have today for WTF or What's the Focus. Thanks for tuning in. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next and then it's over to Enterprise. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.